1: Welcome to another episode of the Family Gamers Podcast. This is episode 328.
0: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the show. We are the Family Gamers. As always, I am Andrew, and I am joined by my lovely one wonderful wife Anitra. That's me. And I think, finally, we're done being sick. Maybe. It is
1: still winter. Yeah,
0: right. Well, I mean, done being sick for now. This current (laughs) wave of sickness has passed, at least for the two of us. Welcome, everybody, to the show. We are delighted to be here this week. We are going to talk about Room to Grow. This is the series that we do where we talk about three games, a simple one, a little bit more complex one, and then our final form, which is still usually a family weight game. It's not like your super, super complicated things. This week, we're going to talk about dungeon crawls. Yes, we are. So the big famous ones right now are Gloomhaven and Frosthaven. They are not on our list. Those go beyond our family gamers' room to grow for dungeon crawls. So don't worry, we're not going to talk about them.
1: But first, I'm going to bet you have a fact.
0: Yeah, well, first we have to do the entire first half of the show.
1: Yeah, let's do that.
0: (laughs) All right. So my fact for episode number 328, did you know that according to SeaWorld, there are 328 different species of parrot?
1: SeaWorld, that uh, great authority in bird kind. That
0: bastion of kind? wildlife knowledge. I know. Well, listen. It's fine. It's the internet. I'm taking what I can get. And it's better than like randowildlifefactsite.com? Sure. I wonder if that's a real place. Probably not. I'm not sure if I can come up with 328 differentiations of the name Polly, nor mm. do we have 328 crackers in our house. But I do think our three kids would count as 328 candy pirates. <laughs>
1: That might be a little high.
0: I mean, they'll try their best. Uh, They certainly will. Especially the eight-year-old. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, that's my fact about our episode number 328.
1: Meanwhile, I have a message from our sponsor, First Move Financial. Did you know there's a U.S. law that allows every American to check their credit reports with each of the three major credit bureaus each year for free? You don't have to sign up for a service or pay a monthly fee. Just go to annualcreditreport.com. It's important to check your credit reports so that you know if someone has opened accounts in your name, or if a creditor is misreporting an old debt, and to see which accounts you forgot to close that might be hurting your credit score. First Move has a blog post that we'll link to in the show notes about how to read your credit reports. If you're overwhelmed by debt, hiring a financial advisor may not be right for you. But First Move is still happy to have a 15-minute phone call to get you going in the right direction for free and point you towards some free resources. Go to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers and set up a time to chat today.
0: Thanks so much to the team of First Move Financial for sponsoring another episode of the Family Gamers podcast. Hey, Nisha, have we been playing games? I think we've been playing games.
1: We have been playing games. All right, so let's
0: talk about what games we have, in fact, been playing.
1: Well, we've been playing more Turing Machine. Because we, we can't get enough we, of Turing that, Machine. That's
0: true. <laughs> yep. We have been playing more Turing Machine.
1: And trying to recommend it to all of our computer science-y friends. All of the people.
0: All of the people. Yes.
1: We also got another chance to play Lacrimosa with, with four players.
0: players. Yeah. Yeah. I really like... Hmm, I like this game a lot. And it's, not just
1: because you won this time.
0: Well, that's true. Um, <laughs> but no, I you know it's got a bunch of really interesting things going on all at the same time. The presentation is delightful. The theme is unique. I love the weird take on area control that this game has. I think when we write the review for this, I think the player boards, I will probably talk about more than I should. Maybe that's why you should write the review. I I
1: mean, they're a pretty great design. (laughs) I think the theme is really cool. It's the kind of thing you really don't see much. And although it is a heavier weight game, it does a really good job not overwhelming you with choices. Yeah, we
0: definitely struggled a little bit with some of the symbology. There's two symbols that we kept getting like crossed yes. with each other, which is whatever. But the game does a pretty good job of leading you to the next thing that you're supposed to do, which is really nice.
1: Yeah. And it's one of those games where you have to have some balance. So as soon as you start going a little bit too far down one road, you're like, wait, I have to go do this other thing because if I don't do it at all, that's going to be bad.
0: So when we got into final scoring, I was way behind, but I had invested a lot in the actual composition of the Requiem, which is one of the things that scores at the end of the game. And that was what nudged me ahead. I didn't win by a ton. Yeah. You won
1: by four points. Yeah. So. Which is not a huge amount.
0: Yeah. That's kind of how that all went down. But lovely. I mean, it's beautiful. The game's super nice. I mean, it's a little bit of a table hog. We have what? What is that table? A three by five foot table. And it was completely full.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a decent sized table and yeah. it was it was just full of stuff. Mm-hmm. The other thing I will say is that I did not appreciate after our first play how different the cards can be coming out like depending on what order they come out in. Our first game that was just you and me, we pulled a lot of the the action cards, the memory yep. cards. Mm-hmm. And so we were incentivized to like, okay, well I'm going to buy these memory cards, and get to do more things on my future turns. Yep. The four-player game we played, there were not a lot of those that came out, just the way that stuff got shuffled up. So we had a ton of the uh, what are called the opus cards, which are little compositions that Mozart did along the way, and you get opportunities to perform them or sell them off again after you've composed them, and it can get you both money and victory points. So that's part of why we actually had a much higher scoring game because we're like, well, I can't do anything to improve my actions, but I can always go compose another opus. Let me go do that and see what I can do with that.
0: Yeah. And I think we did a lot of selling of those to get money to then turn around and do a lot of other things.
1: Uh, Some people did. I didn't do a lot of selling because I picked up a goal or two early in the game that are like, if you have this combination of symbols on your opuses, you get big points.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. It was a really interesting way to see different kinds of organic strategy and how they would have to come out of the game depending on what comes up. Right. And yeah. so maybe the next game we will play. It'll be a straight mix of the two of them and it won't be slanted in one direction or the other and it'll be even different again. Yeah. But I think that speaks well to the game because it's not like either one of them fell flat. I think that maybe, because we didn't know the game as well the first time that we played, it felt a little unbalanced, but now that we've seen the other side of that, you know, it's a better understanding of just, this is the cards that come out, and this is how you have to work through them. hmm And in truth, isn't that kind of like how life works, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, it's like if you don't get a job, you don't get a job. It's just the way it is, right? So. Yep. Yeah. So that is Lacrimosa. We also played a few games of Featherlight.
1: The more I play this, the more I'm liking it. Mm-hmm. Although, it is a different kind of strategy playing this at two players than at more. Featherlight, I know we've talked about it a little bit before, but it's this game where you have a hand of cards and then there's these nests of cards around the table. And your goal is that at the end of the game, you can use the five cards in your hand to get the most points. Yeah, this is
0: a, I would call it a dynamic set collection game. Yes, because over the course of the game, you're always changing what sets you want to collect, because as you draw cards, the goals that are on those cards are different kinds of sets that you're going to want to collect. But as you draw them, you might find sets that the conditions on the board, you know, they're just it's more achievable. Or they're worth more points and it's equally achievable. Or you want to take a risk. So you're going to go for something that's even more points, Mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. though it might not be as achievable or something like that. But it's really cool because you're so limited. At the end of the game, you only have at most 11 cards that you're using to perform all of your scoring, even though you have five different scoring conditions that you're working through.
1: Yeah. And the thing that, that really struck me is that at two players, you can definitely very much see that there's kind of a battle over... I want the nest to look a certain way, and you want it to look a certain way, and parts of that are going to overlap and parts of it aren't. Uh, And so it's a more direct kind of back and forth on that, and you can start to see like what's important and what's not important, and that may change what you do for your goals. Like, it makes it obvious, like, this is not going to be achievable because I really need there to be exactly three purple cards out there, and my opponent keeps covering them up. I'm not going to be able to do this. You know what? I'm going to discard this goal that has three purple cards and pick up something else that I think I'm going to be able to get. When you play with more players, it's a lot less obvious what people are going for. Not that you know exactly at two players, but you can at least see what people are definitely not going for at two players. Yeah,
0: I mean, even at two though, like there were definitely times where I made decisions based on the fact that if I did the more obvious thing, you would know what I was trying to do. And so you're still trying to disguise what you're doing. I think at higher player counts, you just – can do that less because there's not enough brain power in your head to maintain what all of the different other people are doing.
1: We don't need to disguise what we're trying for at a Not higher as much.
0: Count. Not as much.
1: But there's also a lot more variation from one turn to the next. You can't count as much on the nest looking mostly the same between your two turns.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a really cool game. I don't want to say anything bad about the publisher's decisions, but I really wish they didn't put that dumb bird on the front, because I think it does a disservice to the beauty of the rest of the game.
1: Yes, it makes it look like it's some silly little game. It's not a silly game. It's not a game you can even make be a silly game. It is serious, although short.
0: But I really, really, really like the fact that you have to hold your goals loosely in your hand.
1: Yeah, I really
0: Because it forces you to be nimble. Yeah. Right. So the information that you have, like, there's enough shared information that you have to make choices that are going to affect everybody. And other people's choices might affect you in a good way or a bad way. And you just have to really be careful about that. Like, in some ways, it makes me think capital Lux. I mean, it's less. There's not all the different jobs or whatever those things are. Yeah, there's a little bit
1: less going on than Capital Lux.
0: But it has some of that same kind of public-private information thing that you have in a game like that, which I find really interesting.
1: It's also a shorter game than Capital Lux, Mm -hmm. so we're definitely going to be getting ready to review Featherlight fairly soon. I think this hits a nice sweet spot of it's a fairly serious game while being a very light game. And quick. Yeah.
0: Like you said. Yeah. So that's Featherlight. We really like it. Who's that from? Do you know?
1: That is from WizKids. Oh,
0: cool. So a bigger publisher. Interesting.
1: We also played one of the games that you brought back from Essen, finally.
0: Yeah. We played Detect Team. Family. One egg, too many.
1: So this was really enjoyable. It really does fit that family weight that it says it's going for. And it's a mystery solving game that is literally just about, there is an extra egg in this nest. Where did it come from? How did it get there? When did it get there? Who does it belong to? So it gives all of the thrill of solving a mystery in a very, very kid friendly way.
0: Yeah, I felt very validated because it was a little bit like pulling teeth to get the kids to the table. But then when they were done, they're like, this was fun. And then yesterday, our eight year old was like, I'm going to do the other one. I'm like, no, you're not. Because the family's not together, and we're doing it together.
1: Yeah, we're going to play that one as a family because it is a one-time play game.
0: <laughs> right, because I had brought two of them home from Essen. So this is a game series by Red Cat Games. I think I don't think these are available in the United States. Certainly no. not from that publisher. I'm not really sure, but uh, this is different from the Detective series from man, dv games
1: man it felt a lot like detective though yeah
0: it's got a lot of the same thing so that it's oversized cards and the way this plays out there are two cards that represent kind of the middle of a mosaic and you lay out i think it's five cards off the top of the deck and each player picks two of them and decides which one of them they think adds more information to the mosaic they discard the other one face down so nobody can see it and then they play the one that they think is the most valuable, face up into the mosaic. And you can, it's pretty obvious where it goes, right? It, yeah, it, it's, it's got
1: a white border along the edge of the big picture. Yep. So even for kids who might struggle a little bit with puzzle and spatial stuff, you can just be like, oh, well, this white border is obviously at the top. So it has to go either here or here. Let's take a look.
0: Yeah. So it's a three by four grid or something like that, four by three grid and the cards aren't like flipped upside down. So you pretty much know where these cards are going to go. It's pretty obvious. But so you go around the table and you keep doing this. And eventually by the end, you have completed the mosaic. Mm -hmm. And there's like speech bubbles and little things in the pictures that people might notice.
1: And characters. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: At least for the one that we did, I don't know if the other one is the same way. It has timing in it. So you might see parts of the mosaic that happened before other parts of the mosaic, which is fine. It totally makes sense.
1: Yeah. This one in particular, one of the questions to answer was, when did this egg end up in the nest? Yeah. Not just how, but when. And so, yeah, there was today, yesterday evening, yesterday afternoon, a week ago, stuff like that.
0: Right. So I would say that it wasn't super difficult I would say that from a narrative perspective, there were some very minor details that we didn't quite get right, but we answered all the questions correctly and the kids had fun solving the mystery. It was really neat because you'd flip cards out. This actually reminded me a little bit of Suspects in this way. You'd flip cards out and be like, oh, this must mean this. And then you would flip something outside and you'd be like, oh, nope, it's something
1: else. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so it was really a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to playing the next one.
1: I will also say that unlike a more grown-up game, like a detective or something like that, or suspects, it explicitly tells you in the rules, assume that all of the characters here are telling the truth. Nobody is trying to mislead you. Nobody's trying to fool you. You're just trying to figure out what happened.
0: Yeah, there's some like honest mistakes, for example, that happen. Mm-hmm. And it's totally understandable. And everybody has good intentions.
1: Yep. yep. It's really wholesome. I like this whole like solving a mystery where nothing bad really happens.
0: It's like Larry and his hairbrush.
1: Uh, yes, actually it is. <laughs> All
0: right. Uh, next game that we played is a game that we got in for review. This is something that we had talked about on the show a really long time ago. We got a chance to play Unmatched Houdini versus the Genie.
1: We got it in just this week. Mm-hmm. And... You and I and Asher were all super excited for it. So I don't think it sat on the shelf for more than about 12 hours before (laughs) you guys found a time to play it. Now, have you messed around with it at all? I haven't even really gotten a chance to look at it yet.
0: So the relevant facts on this one, Genie is ranged and Genie can move three. Houdini is not ranged. Houdini has a partner who is Bess. Mm -hmm. Houdini has this really cool ability where if you use a card to boost some of the cards that you use to boost have something else that happens, like deal two damage to someone or draw a card or whatever, as part of that boost mechanic. There are also attacks that Houdini has that say you may boost this attack. There's even one card, which is like the grand reveal or something like that. There's two of them in the deck, and it allows you to boost it twice. So you can attack, and actually I did this fairly early on in the game. I attacked, I boosted it twice to be like worth seven, Oof. and one of the boosts was also deal two damage to your opponent. Ouch! Right. Man. Yeah, it's pretty nasty. So Houdini is very much a character who, I mean, deals in misdirection. That's really shouldn't uh, be a yes. surprise, right? One of the things that I think would be an amazing addition is if Houdini had some cards that used that thing that we saw in Battle of Legends Volume 2, that like secondary attack thing.
1: Oh you know yeah, what I'm yeah. Talking about
0: that, yep. I think I think the Monkey King did it. And I think, yeah, yeah. And I think um, there uh, were there were a couple Patropolis of different ones. And yeah. Achilles did it as well. That would be kind of a cool thing as well. It's very much like there's a certain degree of how do I say this with Sun Wukong? It's almost like this like kind of funny misdirection. It's this kind of jester like yes. kind of attitude yes. that you see with Sun Wukong, right? It's just that's part of his character, whereas with Houdini, his misdirection is much more
1: serious. It's very serious. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean because I know a bit about Houdini even though I haven't seen the set yet. Mm -hmm. Houdini was not like the stage magicians we think of today, you know, putting a bunch of humor and stuff in there. He was always deadly serious about it. And all of his escape stunts he really did do himself it wasn't really about the misdirection most mm-hmm. of the time
0: yeah i mean there are some stage magicians now who do things that portend to be serious for the sake of shock value but for houdini it was like this is a craft and it it's like yes. it it was a very heavy thing i guess that's the word heavy that sure. kind yeah. of it. but anyway houdini and sun wukong this is where i was going with this have a lot of similarity in the whole misdirection thing but the feeling of the cards is completely different. completely different. And that's a testament to the incredible art design that Restoration Games has. Sure. Right.
1: I'm also going to mention, I like that they give Bess as his sidekick. Because Bess was actually Harry Houdini's wife, as well as stage manager, stage assistant type. All right. More review games coming listeners' way. Uh, we played <laughs> some more Flamecraft, just you and me this time. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it went nice and smooth and quick with two players.
1: I like that it really felt substantially the same with two players. Obviously, there were a few changes, like we really didn't want to go to each other's faces unless we really couldn't avoid it. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, still felt like the same game, which is good news for a game like Flamecraft, which is very family friendly, and you want it to still be friendly no matter how many people are playing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it scales well, I guess is, is ultimately what you know we're talking about. I think it... Probably was just under an hour for the two of us to play through a game of that. So that was, you know, fun. I really like how easy it is in that game to do the cost benefit analysis of what you're going to do on your turn because everything is just pretty straightforward and simple. So, you know, one of the few times I did go to a place where you were, it was pretty easy for me to say, okay, if I do this, I'm going to get this and then I can do that. You know what I mean? Like working Mm -hmm. through that process, it's not painful to figure out seven different things like that's one of those things about lacrimosa is even though it's a fairly complex (laughs) game everything is so bite-sized that you can like yes you have to sequence some stuff together but you're not going to lose your place you know it's not like a game of through the ages where you literally need a notepad to figure out everything you're going to do on your turn
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you draw that parallel because I can see it now, both Lacrimosa and Flamecraft, it looks like there's a lot of choices, but at any given time, you kind of look up and you're like, well, there's maybe two or three things that actually make sense for me to do. Let me look at those couple of things and make a choice between those.
0: Yeah, so I really like that game. I like that that game is cute without eschewing the complexity for the sake of the cuteness. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And finally... Another game that I'm really enjoying is Chronicles of Avel. We played this three players last night, and I think that having played it in the past, plus my solo experience, made it a much better experience than the first time we played.
1: It was a much smoother and better experience. I'm still not entirely sold on this game because, in part, only having two actions on your turn just does not feel like enough, especially sometimes you get these random layouts of the board where there's are supposed to be these little like wormhole transport gates things. And we ended up with two out of the three of them were right next to each other. And the second one was only one more space away. So there was no fast way to get across the board. So I spent several turns where it was just like, and I'm going to move to, Hey, maybe I can do something next turn. I don't,
0: I mean, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, like, I don't think that's a problem as long as you're not sitting there with a group of people who are just like struggling with analysis paralysis. Like, it's okay if turns go quick.
1: Oh, it's totally okay if turns go quick, but it's frustrating to be like, hey, you got to do stuff and attack. You got to attack and buy stuff. I moved. I mean, and that's all I did.
0: This is kind of what we talked about the first time we played, where Asher just spent a lot of time just camping and fighting monsters. And that's really not how you win this game.
1: And we've learned that, and it, it definitely, you know, it felt better this time, but it's still frustrating to take an entire turn moving. But um, I,
0: but again, so with the cooperative nature of this game, my point is saying something like, hey, I'm going to move over here. Please don't attack that guy. I'm going to get him next turn. Like, that's an okay thing to do. And as sure, long as sure. you're cycling through your turns fast enough, which I think we were for the most part, it's not that big of a deal. Like. It's okay if a turn is just spent moving around on the map, as long as you're setting something up for the next time.
1: I get what you're saying, and to an extent, I agree, but in the game we played, I had to do that a bunch of times, and it was really frustrating.
0: So I think that the solution there, I guess is what I'm saying, is maybe we just need to like talk out what we're going to do a little bit more, and make sure that we're giving you the space that you need to be able to do something effective on your subsequent turn. There's just a little bit more planning, I think. Sure. I think that would solve some of that. I do agree with you. Like, I definitely think this game played better as a solo game because I had four actions. and I could do whatever I wanted. I really liked that part of it. And if there was a way to rejigger this thing so that everybody had three actions or something like that where there was some kind of an adjustment, like, I get what you're saying. and I'm not trying to discard it, but I think you can get around that by having more communication. The problem is... If you're trying to get around a primary game mechanic, that implies that there's something wrong with the game.
1: Yes, that is what I'm getting at. Like, it's not a bad game, but it's not what I would want it to be either.
0: Right. I just, I don't love bringing up critiques if I don't have a solution for them. And that's not my job is to have a solution for them, but I just don't like doing it. So, I mean, it's just, it's kind of something to talk about, work through. I think it's something that can be iterated on, but... I think just like the last time when I talked about playing this game solo like I don't think this game is doing new and original things mechanically I think it's presentation is what really raises this game to a higher level oh it's tremendous so do I have an answer for this I don't know I mean as we think this through and as we write down our thoughts and actually provide something to publish I think at that point you know we're gonna have um, a little bit more you know not to bury the lead or anything, but we're going to talk about this game the second half of the show. So uh, I'm yeah, going to stop so talking about we, it right We can now. stop talking about it. Yeah. And we're going to get into why it works, why it doesn't as part of the Room to Grow dungeon crawl stuff. But for now, I think we'll, we'll leave it there.
1: All right. Well, so that's what we've been playing.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been a good week, I think. We had some, uh, some cancellations due to snow, uh, which didn't really result in snow. But I digress. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm still going to say that uh, it led to some opportunities for game playing, which I appreciate.
1: Yeah yeah
0: alright and with that I think we're gonna go to a break
1: and when we come back we will welcome the newest members to the family gamers community right. and then and then talk about Room to Grow
0: okay we'll be right back
1: Ring-tailed lemurs are really cute. They are cute. They live in Madagascar. You
0: are quickly running out of facts that I know about lemurs.
1: It turns out one of their favorite foods is prickly pear cactus, even though it's not native to the island of Madagascar. But it's there? Yeah.
0: Okay. But that's not important right now. What is important is that this is a snap about Mata
1: a game about lemurs and prickly pears. Mata is a simple card game designed by Sophia Wagner and published by Helvetic. Two to five players ages seven and up can play in about 20 minutes. And there's a lemur on the box. There is. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about that art. As you might guess from the box, the cards are much narrower than normal playing cards. But they don't need to hold a whole lot of information, so that's fine. These cards, illustrated by Clarissa Milan, have a limited color palette. It's mostly bright yellow, pink, and dark green. The numerals and the prickly pears are both important, so they both stand out in a bright pink.
0: And the special cards, the lemurs, hey, the double lemurs, and the scorpions are very obviously different from the cactus cards. So let's talk about the mechanics in this game. Sure. You already mentioned the numbers and the prickly pears are important. So the goal of Mata is to have the most prickly Pairs in your winnings pile at the end of the game.
1: So how do you get them? Well, by not being the person to lose a round. Wait, what? Let's back up. Okay. Every player starts the game with three cards in their hand, and you're never allowed to have more than three.
0: On your turn, you choose whether to play a card, draw a card, or try your luck.
1: If you play a card... It goes into the pile in front of you. You can only play a card if it has a number equal or higher than the number on the card it covers. You could
0: instead draw a card, if you have fewer than three cards in your hand. If you can't play a card that meets those restrictions, or you don't want to, you can try your luck instead. You announce to the table that you're trying your luck, not drawing, and then flip a card directly from the draw pile onto your own stack.
1: If it meets the restrictions to play... Great, you're safe, and the round continues.
0: But, if the flipped card is lower than the card on top of your stack, sorry, you lose.
1: Every other player takes the top card from their stack and stashes it in a winnings pile. The one benefit to losing is that you can choose to discard cards from your hand and draw replacements.
0: But what about those special cards? The lemur, when played on top of your stack drags the top card down to the bottom of the stack. This can be a handy way to expose a lower number card so you can continue to play some lower number cards from your hand.
1: The double lemur lets you swap your current stack with another player, and they're not allowed to refuse. After the swap, put the double lemur in the discard pile.
0: There's one other card that ends up in the discard pile, the scorpion. As soon as you draw a scorpion, you must discard it, along with another card from your hand.
1: These three special cards definitely keep things interesting.
0: Once a player has amassed five cards in their winnings, the game is over. Now we no longer care about the numbers on the cards. Instead, we are counting those pink prickly pears present on the winning cards.
1: Whoever has the most prickly pears wins the game.
0: So, Anitra, what did we expect from this little box game?
1: I love finding new very small games. This tiny box from Helvetic reminds me of my favorite games from publishers like Oink and ButtonChai. But all I knew from the back of the box was that the game is about collecting prickly pears.
0: I didn't really know what to expect from this game. Uh, I do think that games that make obvious, like, stylistic decisions, like, you look at the box and there's clear stylistic decisions being made there, they often have some kind of an interesting hook, so I was expecting something. I just didn't know what it was. So... What
1: surprised us about Mata?
0: Well, we first played it with just the two of us, but with two players, it's kind of obvious to see what your opponent is going to do or when they're going to be forced to go out or not. So, honestly, after one play, we didn't really like it that much.
1: Three players was a little better, but we had the most fun playing Mata with five people. The more piles there are around the table, the harder it is to predict what's going to happen.
0: And that actually kind of was my surprise anyone who knows me knows that i have issues taking things a little bit too seriously sometimes (laughs) and this is definitely a game where you just need to like lighten up and not overanalyze what's going on so anitra do we recommend mata
1: mata rewards pushing your luck and looking at the odds around the table in a way that's really best for four or five players but don't push your luck too much because weird stuff might happen (laughs)
0: This is better for light play with a little bit of maybe silliness while having a conversation or maybe having a beverage, whatever. It makes for a great family game, maybe right after dinner.
1: Yeah. Hmm. So, Andrew, what are we going to rate Mata?
0: Well, just like those lemurs, I think we're going to rate it three prickly pears out of five.
1: And that's Mata in a snap. And we're back. Hello. So we're going to kick this off by welcoming... Five new members to the Family Gamers community.
0: Hello and welcome. (laughs) I will start us off by saying welcome to Rachel.
1: Welcome to Katie.
0: Welcome to Ben.
1: Welcome to Adam. And
0: welcome to Judy.
1: We are really glad that you're part of the community. And thanks for listening to the show.
0: Yep, And I hope you did, in fact, just like our welcome post said, have some fun playing games this past weekend. Alrighty, sure. Let's get into it.
1: So as a reminder, our Room to Grow series is designed to bring you and your kids through a series of games that grow in complexity. All of these should be family weight games. We do our best to start with a game that shows a mechanic or a playstyle really, really simply about as simply as is possible and then move up to a game that adds a little more. And then one that gives you the full experience of whatever that style is in a family weight context.
0: Yep. And I should say, like, these are primarily focused at how you would bring your kids through these mechanics, but it doesn't necessarily have to be kids. In this case, it really is super kid-focused, but some of our Room to Grows in the past have not necessarily been so.
1: Yes, like Rollin' uh, Roll and Legacy games. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: All right, so let's get started. So Room to Grow, like you said, we're going to talk about dungeon crawl games. And, do you want to define a dungeon crawl game?
1: I would much rather that you prefer a dungeon <laughs> crawl game because it's not entirely my thing, I'm going to give it a quick shot and you tell me where you think I'm okay, right or wrong. I think that's
0: fair, sure, if you want to do that.
1: A dungeon Crawl game is you are exploring a dungeon or, you know, a space, mm-hmm. which is mostly hidden. It might be randomly generated or it might be decided ahead of time. And in that space, you're going to find a treasure that you get to keep and you're going to find monsters that you have to fight. I feel like there's more to it than that, but that's about as much as I can say from my experience of Dungeon Crawl Sure. Okay. Well, so
0: what is the most famous game you can think of that has the word dungeon in it?
1: Dungeons and Dragons. Okay.
0: When you take an RPG, which is what Dungeons and Dragons is, and you break it up, you kind of have two parts to it. You have the plot slash narrative part of the game.
1: The role-playing part. And then you have
0: the dungeon crawl. Yeah. Where you crawl through the dungeon. That's sort of where this concept came from of the dungeon crawl. And, you know, over time, as these things got more complex and as, you know, dungeon masters got more creative, they would weave plot into the dungeon crawl. You have to go through to get to the boss at the end. And in the most simple version of this, it was the dragon's placing the town. You go through the dungeon, you kill all the things, you get to the big bad, you kill the big bad, you go back and you get your reward and you're done. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's kind of the most simple way. But then you start to play games like like Neverwinter Nights was kind of the classic game or Baldur's Gate was the classic video game that you would go through the dungeon part and you would do all that stuff. Or even Diablo was a great example of this. But then at the end, there would be more plot that would be revealed during your combat with your boss, with the boss, with your boss, during your combat with your boss. No, (laughs) please (laughs) don't combat with your boss. Don't don't fight your boss at the end of that level. And so that would add more complexity and you get all these layers. And this sort of generic genre of dungeon crawl became a thing. So right now, the probably the most famous dungeon crawls are Gloomhaven and Frosthaven, which I mentioned top half mm-hmm, of the show. Mm-hmm. These are from Cephalofair Games. We just talked to Ross Thompson a few weeks ago, who's was talking about the Gloomhaven RPG that's coming out. Full circle, right? But these are epic dungeon crawls. I mean, these boxes, I think the Frosthaven box weighs something like 45 pounds. It's this enormous thing. And these are dungeons that you lay out according to the instructions. You've got all these pieces and you kind of lay them out and you've got your minis and you you traipse along in the dungeon and you encounter bad guys and you fight them. And then you go on. I don't play the Haven game, so I don't know if you flip a page and it tells you it's kind of the next way to, to set it up or whatever. But you're slowly revealing this dungeon, this layout that's been crafted, and you're weaving in some narrative with that, and you're crawling through the dungeon. And the primary thing here is this whole mechanic of, I move here, I roll some dice, or I whatever my randomization mechanic is, I try to fight this guy, maybe I have to move because I need a line of sight, maybe I'm a ranged character, or a melee character, all of this kind of stuff. All right, All of that stuff goes into what makes a dungeon crawl. Now, that doesn't mean all of these things are mandatory for a dungeon crawl Mm -hmm. but that's kind of the, the general character of what a dungeon crawl is so the main element you mostly touched on them is you have a dungeon that is hidden in some way it might be like in one of the games on our list that it's hidden because it is laying tiles so it literally doesn't exist until you build it yourself it might be that it's laid out at the beginning of the game face down and then you flip those tiles over and those create a space or it might be that you have a predefined space and there are obstacles or something to that effect that you would flip over as you go and then over the course of that whole process you're maybe finding plot elements maybe you're you're fighting bad guys maybe you're finding treasure, all of those kinds of things come together and usually they build up to a big final fight at the end. The big thing that I want to point out about a dungeon crawl is it doesn't necessarily have to have an overarching narrative that is really concrete. So two of the games on our list here don't really have concrete narrative. Like there's a concept, there's a MacGuffin of the game, but there's no plot that is really yeah. Important to what you're doing. Yeah. So, a dungeon crawl, you know, kind of like how we talked about legacy versus campaign games, a dungeon crawl can be a legacy game or a campaign game, or it's not. And it's got a lot of different flavors in the middle of it.
1: Yeah. You're talking about it being revealed in some way as you play through the game. Reminded me that there are two different, more or less roll and write dungeon crawls that I know of. Okay. One is Dungeon Academy, which the entire dungeon is revealed at once, but nobody gets to see it ahead of time.
0: I wouldn't define um, that as a dungeon crawl, though.
1: It is at least very inspired by dungeon crawls. Okay, even that's if it is fine. not.
0: That's fine, but um, I wouldn't call Dungeon Academy a dungeon
1: crawl. The other one is Deadly Doodles from Steve Jackson Games, in which, again, you can see some or most of the walls and monsters, but there are also traps within the dungeon that you can't see, and you don't know until you've finished plotting out your route, and you're like, oh no, I did this thing and it ran me over a trap, and I got you know, right. I got yep. hurt on the way.
0: Deadly Doodles is closer, I think. But I mean, they're both
1: very inspired by dungeon crawls. They're not exactly a dungeon crawl. Mm-hmm. Sure.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into it. So the first one on our list, this is a game that the initial release really didn't have an overarching plot, but the expansion gave it kind of a campaign quality. Mm -hmm. And that is Quest Kids.
1: Yeah, so we reviewed Quest Kids a little while back. It is a very enjoyable, very accessible intro to dungeon crawling for kids. Mm
0: -hmm. So in Quest Kids, the entire board is pretty much fixed. It's printed on the board. And even in the campaign, you use the exact same board for everything. But instead of crawling through the dungeon and finding the path through the dungeon, you're kind of finding a path through the monsters. But some of those... Monsters are actually just treasure. So at the beginning of the game, you set it up with some vague instruction about what color monsters you put in certain places, but it's totally randomized. And as you're working through, you move to a space and you flip over a tile and then you do whatever that tile says. So you don't really define the dungeon organically, but you do define the responses to your movements in a more organic, programmatic way. Kind of a way, because of the way the tiles were dealt out. Sure. One of the things I love about Quest Kids, especially for that kid audience, is that there really isn't any reading required. There's no numeracy, really. I mean, if you can count to five, you can play this game. If you're playing the campaign mode, there's definitely plot, and someone is going to need to read all that stuff. But it really only needs to be one person. I kind of functioned as the game master when we played, although I didn't need to. So I didn't actually play with the boys as they played through. Quest Kids mm-hmm. and the expansion, but I could have. Quest Kid supports up to four players. There's four different characters that you they can play as. And it's very straightforward. There's really no randomness other than the randomness of placing the tiles out to begin with, but there's no die rolling or anything like that. You fight a monster. If you have the resources to beat the monster, you hand them in to the bank and you move on. And that's pretty much how it goes. There's bonuses for helping one another.
1: Yeah, I love that you're incentivized for helping each other in this game. And it's, like you said, it is rated for ages five plus, and that's about right. This is definitely a pre-readers kind of game. The very few cards that have text on them, it's two or three words. And even a kid who's just working on sounding stuff out can either do it themselves or ask somebody, because again, Nothing's really secret in this game either. Right. Yeah. It's not even... I mean, <sighs> technically it's coopetition.
0: There is kind of scoring of whose air quote wins at the end based yeah. on all the rewards that you have, but it really doesn't matter. It's a cooperative game as far as I'm concerned.
1: Well, and that's the thing. I think that makes it great for kids is that if they just want to cooperate and, hey, let's see if we can beat this. Great. You don't need to worry about scoring at all. Right. If you have kids who are very much a, I want to win this game. You can still do that with Quest Kids, even in the regular base game. Once you get into the campaign, you do need to cooperate and scoring becomes much less of a thing.
0: Well, scoring matters because you get upgrades based on your scores, Okay. based on your cumulative score across all of the scenarios. Sure. So you want the upgrades, you got to score well. But other than that, you're right. They don't really matter all that much. It's really about getting through the game itself. Yeah. And that is Quest Kids. You can head over to thefamilygamers.com to see a review of both the base game and the expansion.
1: Yep. We reviewed that back in August.
0: The next game on the list is Karak. This was Catacombs of Karak when we reviewed it. It's now just Karak from Cosmos. Yes. This game is a little bit more complicated than Quest Kids. There's definitely a little bit more symbols and recognition of those kinds of things. Unlike Quest Kids, where you have a board and you just set out all these pieces, Karak is a tile placement game where you're dynamically generating the dungeon as you go.
1: Yeah, I really like the idea here that you're in whatever room in the dungeon and you say, hmm, there's a doorway over here. I'm going to explore in this direction. And then you pull a tile and place it there.
0: Yeah, and so... As you pull these tiles, it's creating spaces and maybe you're generating dead ends and all the stuff. But as you go along, you are given the ability to get better weapons, which are going to give you better attacks and things like this. And the goal of this game is ultimately to be the one who defeats the dragon.
1: Yeah, this one is very direct. You must fight monsters to get stuff. I mean, yes, there are some treasure chests and stuff that you can pull along the way, but you can't open a treasure chest without a key. And how do you get a key? You fight the key skeleton. So there's also dice rolling in this game. So there is a lot more luck involved, both in the dice rolling and in what monsters you pull. We have commented in the past that although we really like the setup and the simplicity of Karak, there's so much randomness in it that it can go a little long, especially if you start the game by pulling a bunch of high value monsters that are really hard to beat with straight dice rolls and no weapons or other advantages.
0: I will say there are some other RPG-like elements in Karak that make it a little bit more complex for kids as well. There actually is the idea of inventory management in mm-hmm. this game. So mm-hmm. you have two slots for weapons, one slot for a key, and then three, I don't know, generic scrolls, scrolls are or whatever slots. there. Yeah. And this game introduces the tracking of life as tokens, which that is actually something that Quest Kids also has. But now you've got asymmetric player powers, right? Because mm-hmm. depending on which character you mm-hmm. have, you have special abilities. So you're going to need to be able to read at least a little bit to figure those out. And you do have that inventory management piece as well. There's also things like curses and stuff like that. I don't think there's anything in Quest Kids that people would be concerned about from a content perspective there's a little bit here it's not adult in any way but if you're sensitive to undead or things like that yeah you know, i guess you might find some of that stuff in quest kit as well it's just something to just be aware of if it's something that your family is the, sensitive to
1: the monsters are still very cartoony oh, and karak but they're a little bit scarier looking yeah you say you need to be able to read I actually disagree, much like Quest Kids. If you have one person in the group who can read, the only reading required is those special abilities on each character, mm-hmm. which we started playing Carrick before Elliot could read. And he knew, like, his favorite two characters what their two special abilities were because we had read them out off to him.
0: I suppose so. I feel like. It's really useful for me to continually read my stuff to remember what I can do. Maybe that's because I play too many games.
1: I mean, I I think that's because we're old (laughs) and we play a lot of games. I think
0: it's because we're old. So this is
1: still definitely very accessible to pre-readers. There's a little bit more numbering involved. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the inventory management, understanding that you can't just hang on to all the stuff you're going to need to swap things in and out. Try to get better stuff. Try to use your stuff before you run out of spaces for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All of those sorts of things.
0: And there's numeracy here where there really yes. wasn't with Quest Kids. It's almost yes. like this is maybe a game that kids would grow into. A,
1: a step up from from Quest, <laughs> from Quest Kids. <laughs> <laughs> the one other thing to really be aware of with Carrick, I kind of mentioned this already, but. The dragon is the end of the game in Karak. You have no idea when it's going to come out. The dragon has a health of 15, or a value, I guess, of 15, which means you cannot possibly beat the dragon until you have at least some equipment and a lucky roll. So it's got a defined endpoint like Quest Kids or like most dungeon crawls, but because everything is so randomly generated... You really don't know when the dragon's going to come, where he's going to end up, how soon or how late in the game that is. I don't think that's a bad thing, but it makes it very different from both of the other dungeon crawlers that we're talking about today.
0: Sure. All right. So that does it for Carrick. I think if people have been paying attention for the last 40 minutes, they probably know what our third game is in this series.
1: No. No. Yeah. Our third game is going to be Chronicles of Avel. You've already heard us talk about some of the minor potential problems with Chronicles of Avel.
0: Your minor potential problem with uh, yeah. it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but much like you mentioned with the Trials of Tolk the Wise expansion to Quest Kids, Chronicles of Avel definitely feels a lot more like you have a real goal. There's something going on in the world here. Like there's a reason why you're going to fight this big bed. There is a world you are exploring, not just oh, it's a dungeon, there's this room over here and this room over there.
0: And what they do with Chronicles of Avel that makes it something that we would put next on this list is that it continues to overlay some of those elements that are decidedly dungeon crawl-like elements. So in Chronicles of Avel, there are these spawn points for enemies, Mm -hmm. which is very Mm -hmm. much a dungeon crawl kind of thing. There is the opportunity to block those spawn points. You can set up traps- Mm-hmm. There is, just like in Karak, but not in Quest Kids, there is a limit to your inventory. So you have inventory management.
1: And in Chronicles of Avel, you can have multiple weapons or helms or shields or whatever, and choose to swap them in and out, mm-hmm. which is more of a traditional dungeon crawl, either video game or tabletop game sort of thing to do.
0: Right. And there's even things in Chronicles of Avel that unlike just die rolls, which I think is a type of risk that kids are just used to. It's just part of our culture. Like rolling dice is a thing. There's kind of a gambling tile. It's just really just like a luck tile where you go to it and you roll some dice. And depending on the die rolls, you get different benefits, which is different from rolling dice for combat or different from like rolling dice in a Yahtzee context where you're just kind of trying to create a set. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I think also Chronicles of Avel introduces the idea of buying equipment Mm -hmm. and buying traps and all of those other things. Like most of the monsters in Avel give coins when you kill them. Some of them give other things too. But then you have lots of choices on how you want to use those coins. But again, they fit into the inventory management aspect of if you get too many coins in your bag, you're not going to fit anything else.
0: Yeah. So Quest Kids is really interesting because in Quest Kids... You really have a lot of choice, especially at the beginning of the game with regards to where you're going to go, because you're just trying to move to places where there are clearly tiles that need to be flipped over, Mm -hmm. because pretty much you need to flip over every tile on every session of Quest Kids, right? Yeah. Karak removes a lot of that decision making because pretty much you're just going down the path that you're on. Like, it might have a fork in it, but it's probably going to resolve. Mm-hmm. And so there's not a lot of decision-making in Carrack, but there's a lot of these other things, like inventory management, like fighting things and, and rolling dice and chance and luck and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Chronicles of Aval puts all of that stuff together. So now you really have choices that you need to make. You have a ticking timer so you can see that at the end of this thing, stuff's going to happen there's this back and forth between all the players get to rest at the end of the turn and gain some health versus all of the monsters spawn again. So there's a lot of sequencing or timing, I guess, with yeah. how you want to do certain things. Like, for example, when we last played Chronicles of Avel, we made a decision not to kill a monster because we knew that we wouldn't be able to seal that portal until the next turn but then a new monster a new would spawn there come in. Yeah. so we actually delayed the killing of the monster until after the spawn period so that we could then seal that portal up but that's a complex thing that's a multi-level strategic thing that you wouldn't want to do at these kind of lower level games
1: well, and even in playing Avel, that was one of our struggles the first time we played, is we didn't really realize that in Chronicles of Avel, fighting monsters is just a tool in your tool belt, as it were. Yeah, it's it totally not is. the goal.
0: Right, exactly. The
1: goal exactly. is to accumulate enough treasure and weapons and whatever while exploring the board so that at the end of the game you can fight off the remaining monsters and the big boss.
0: Yeah, and I think that ultimately, that second level goal, where the game doesn't clearly present the actual game goal, like it I mean, it does, it's not hiding it, but you need to learn that there's a strategy and a path to get to the end goal of the game in Avel, which you don't have in the other games. It's just in front of you, you just march ahead and just do the thing.
1: Yeah, the idea of, I'm just going to kind of run by this monster and maybe come back to him later... Feels very foreign, but I think that's a good thing to learn. And Chronicles of Avell gently leads you there.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it's kind of like walking down the main street and you look down an alley and you're like, mm, maybe I'll go down there later. <laughs> right. right. It's that kind of an idea. I mean, that, that's really it. Those are kind of my thoughts on this. I, there are other things. Hero Kids is kind of like an entry RPG kind of a thing, which is heavily dungeon crawl.
1: Korra Quest, Core as Quest as well. is the other
0: one that I was thinking of, which absolutely I think would qualify. As a dungeon crawl, it kind of fits. I think same complexity as Chronicles of Avel, but it's a little bit more karak like.
1: I think Core Quest. Yeah, you you have a little bit more freedom in how you explore. I guess would be how I put it. And it's a lot more plot driven. That's important too. If you like the idea of a dungeon crawl, but you know your kids are like, but why? But why are right. we doing this thing? Mm-hmm. Or starting to lose interest? Then Core Quest might be a better choice because it's still not difficult as games go but there's a lot more reading because there's a real story there mm-hmm. and every single mission you have a reason why and who and what and there's more differentiation as you can play multiple games through it.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think there is kind of like a generic like just play through a dungeon kind of setting yeah. for core quest but certainly the intention of that game is to work through a story. And that's very, very true. You know, if needing a story is part of what keeps your kids engaged, like that might be a, a way to branch off or pivot from this list is-, is after getting some of those fundamental mechanics down with a Quest Kids and a Karak, going into something like a Core Quest might be not a bad idea. But no matter what, presentation-wise, Chronicles of Avell is...
1: is fantastic. It's unbelievable.
0: So that is our list. Have you played any dungeon crawl games with your kids? Have you played these games with your kids? I know in our Family Gamers Community group chat, Stephanie and I was weighing in on her thoughts with regards to Chronicles of the So mm-hmm, you can mm-hmm. certainly drop into that chat and see what people are talking about in there. But what do you think? How, how would people tell us their thoughts, Anitra?
1: Our favorite place to talk about these kinds of things is in the Family Gamers Community on Facebook.
0: Mm-hmm. The easiest way to get there is to go to thefamilygamers.com forward slash community or just go to Facebook and search for the Family Gamers Community.
1: However, we also talk about these kinds of things on Twitter, at FamilyGamersAA. Every once in a while on Instagram, also at FamilyGamersAA. You can comment on our TikTok and YouTube videos. Just look for FamilyGamersAA there as well. If, like a response we got this week, you avoid social media, first of all, good for you. Uh, And second of all, you can email us instead.
0: (laughs) You can find me, Andrew, at TheFamilyGamers.com
1: or Anitra at thefamilygamers.com.
0: Check out our Family Gamers and Play Games with Your Kids merchandise. We also have a Balanced Life merchandise in there as well if you play video games too. You can find t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and more at thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch.
1: Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear and tell your friends about it. Everybody could use a little bit more family-friendly board gaming in their life.
0: Mm-hmm. You can find us at Apple Podcast or whatever your podcast subscription source is. You can also stream us on Amazon Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify. All if those... there's a place where you can't find us, let us know and we'll yeah, try exactly. To
1: make it <laughs> if you would like us to eat weird foods for science,
0: mm, science,
1: you could use any of those avenues to make a suggestion to us or send us the food directly. You can do that. Send it to the Family Gamers. 60 Auburn Street, number 528, Auburn, Massachusetts, 01501. And just so you know, all of this information, contact and whatnot, is in the show notes of every single episode, so you can also look for it there.
0: Family Gamers is sponsored by First Move Financial. Head over to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers to learn how the team at First Move Financial can help you pile up the victory points.
1: Well, I think that's going to be it for this week.
0: All right, you got it. So until next week, everybody. Play games with with your kids.
1: kids.